Well, we'll dismiss our children off to children's ministry. And if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 9, we'll be looking exclusively today at verse 31, Acts chapter 9, verse 31. We saw it last week. We began talking about this idea of the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And we'll continue that discussion this morning. Acts 9, 31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. I forgot to mention this last week, but you know, you read a verse and maybe sometimes, you know, you understand what it means, but also maybe it evokes a feeling. And after working through nine chapters of the book of Acts, the feeling I get from verse 31 is just this deep breath of, this sort of moment of, of consolidation, of comfort, of relief. Uh, there's something about this verse that serves as a kind of summary over the first nine chapters that we've walked through so far. You know, in a slightly related, unrelated note, I was on Instagram last night and a very popular author's Instagram popped up in my feed. I don't follow this guy, but apparently Instagram thinks I should, which kind of proves the opposite of his point, perhaps. Uh, this is not a guy I'm going to tell you about who he is, because like this will tell you something. You know, I'll read almost anyone. I don't, I don't want to recommend this guy. So I'm not going to tell you who he is, which is going to make some of you want to read him even harder. I realize. <laughs> uh, you can ask me later. But his post started off in a very spot-on manner. It was this. In algorithm culture, he writes, social media shows you more of what you're engaging in Ads supply you with more of what you're clicking on. Music services give you more like what you listen to. And news feeds display more of what you already believe and fear. As a result, we dive deeper into a specific point of view rather than seeing other points of view. Eventually, the brain finds its beliefs reinforced and other beliefs so marginalized that we have no empathy for them. So much so that we can be living next door while in completely separate real realities. And he wisely states, an algorithmic culture is a stagnant culture commodifying our attention. Here's, here's the part that I read and thought, oh my goodness, you poor man. He writes in the last piece of this extensive post, in a very desperate manner, I could feel the desperation, the consternation in his writings. Where are the algorithms that give us what we haven't seen, considered, or believed before? That manipulate us to become happier, healthier, and more empathetic, more committed, more grateful. That give us not what we want, or what a corporation wants from us, but what we truly need. He, he, is, he is longing for an algorithm to give him not what he wants, but what he needs. He's even willing to be manipulated so long as that manipulation leads him 
to be happier, healthier, more empathetic, more connected, more grateful. And I read that post and I was agreeing paragraph after paragraph, like, yes, exactly true. We are living in this siloed kind of environment as we engage online. And absolutely, an algorithmic culture is a stagnant culture commodifying our attention. And he says, where are the algorithms that will give us not what we want, but what we need? And I thought, I have that. And it isn't a line of code, it's, it's, it's rather the first cause programmer of the entire thing. And his name is Jesus, and he doesn't give me what I want. He gives me what I need. And, and it doesn't necessarily allow me, it doesn't, it doesn't allow me to become complacent and content in a particular way of thinking. He's constantly challenging my thinking. You know, years ago, years and years ago, there was a poster in my maybe sixth grade class. Oh, I had to be older than that. And it was of Michael Jordan. And it was the, it was, it was in the, it was in the cafeteria, actually. I remember the taste of the cardboard milk box now as I speak. And you know, he was, what was he, six five, maybe, something like that. And I was always tall for my age, and I remember always kind of like walking past this life-size poster of Michael Jordan. Uh, <laughs> kind of tiptoe, and I'm like, almost there. Gotta drink more cardboard milk, and I'll get there. But you know, I never, ever did measure up, and I still don't to this day. And even if I just measured up height-wise, there would be other areas that I would not be equal to. Walking with God is like measuring yourself up against something that you have absolutely no hope of ever being equal to. You have no hope of ever completely understanding, of, of completely exhausting, of getting bored with, growing complacent with. And that's what we see in our text today. Like there's this, this is small little verse but it's this demonstration of this God who works in all of these ways that we don't even really understand to do what he wants to do. And yeah, he doesn't give us necessarily what we want, but he, he, he gives us what we need. And then, weirdly, he changes what we want in the process. So today, you know, it's going to be a simple message. Lord willing, a short one. Three points, all centered around the gratitude that I've just described. The gratitude for a God who is all of those things. And those three points this morning will just be that his purposes will not fail, his people will have fellowship, and his people will have freedom. His purposes will not fail, his people will have fellowship, and his people will have freedom. Number one, his purpose will not fail. Maybe all of us should memorize the sweet, especially this year, the sweet, true, rock-solid promise that we find in Psalm 138, 7 through 8, where it says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. Here's the, here's the line maybe you ought to memorize if you're not going to memorize those whole verses. Here's, here it is. 
The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. And we see in the New Testament his promise to do exactly that, to finish what he started, to complete what he began. He will not forsake the work of his hands, and he will accomplish all of his purposes. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me, and I can just throw in other pronouns, right? The Lord will fulfill his purpose for we, a people. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for them, whoever them are. The Lord will fulfill his purpose. And how is that shown? How is that shown? How is that demonstrated in Acts 9.31? Well, the book of Acts begins with Jesus in verse in chapter 1, verse 8, telling his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts. And here we see in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, the churches in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Jesus says nine chapters earlier, by the way, about 10 years earlier than uh, nine, Acts 9.31, beginning of Acts, Acts 1, Acts 9, about 10 years time elapsed. He says, you will be my witness in these places. And now in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, these places have local bodies of believers. Judea has been reached. Galilee has been reached. Samaria has been reached. And in Acts chapter 9, we saw a few weeks ago that Paul, the future minister of the Gentiles, has been converted from a persecutor to an apostle. The Lord will fulfill his purposes. Like, just think about just think about all of the challenges that we've experienced this year. It's becoming a meme, right? And it'll always be a meme. Here's the thing I, I kind of feel like I need to tell the memers. January is not some magical date in which all hard things will expire. I see no evidence of this changing dramatically. And I hope none of us have some sort of weird idea that once a one is added behind the second two in our year date, like, oh, <laughs> everything's fine. I don't, I don't see that. I hope so. I hope that happens. But, but I don't know that that's going to be the case. But think about all that God has done, like in, in our midst over the last year. I've just listed, you know, sins forgiven, squabbles settled, fears deflated, wisdom granted, endurance supplied. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for us. You know, we're only a third of the way through the book of Acts. And already we've seen arrests. In Acts chapter 4. We've seen corruption in Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. We've seen a potential church-splitting division regarding the care of widows in Acts chapter 6 and 7. We saw the martyrdom of Stephen. We saw the persecution of Saul. And through all of that, the Lord Jesus has seen them through these challenges so that they not only endured, but our verse says what? that they multiplied, that they expanded. The Lord will fulfill 
his purpose so that all throughout these regions, Judea and Galilee and Samaria, they had peace and were being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So the point is, I'm just going to take some application points at the end of each one of these larger points. And the point is simply this. Jesus always gets his way. He is never not winning. But it will seem like that's not true a lot. When Stephen is getting stoned and when Saul is murderously rampaging the church and when Peter and John get arrested, it'll seem often like Jesus is not winning. He's always winning. It's always working out. He's always accomplishing his purposes. And of course, the greatest picture of that of all is him naked on a cross, breathing his last. He was winning then too. And if he was winning then, well, yeah, he's always winning. Just a beautiful, beautiful old poem written by um, by Cooper years and years ago, a friend of John Newton. And you know it, many of you know it, but I just, I haven't read this in a long time, and I just think it's just one of those things we should, we should read at least once a year. And it just says, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ah, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain, but God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. God's purposes will succeed. Number two, his people will have fellowship. How do we see that promise in Acts 9, 31? We'll look back again and Draw your attention again to the names of the places described at the first part of the book, or the first part of the verse. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and remember this. These people did not like each other. Judea here is another way of speaking of the southern kingdom of Israel, and Galilee here is just about as far north as you can get. And they were in the northern kingdom. And some of you don't know this part of Old Testament history. But these, 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 these people split. There was almost a kind of civil war that happened. They were not fans of each other. There was ongoing, you know, centuries-old contention built up between these two entities. Uh, it, it's not actually much of a stretch at all to say that Judea was a blue state and that Galilee was a red state really isn't much of a stretch at all. It would sort of be like if you had a wedding and half of the wedding was from like uh, UC Berkeley and the other half of the wedding was from Peculiar, Missouri, you know? It's like, okay, let's see how that goes. Probably just fine until the alcohol. So what you've got in this verse is a little bit of an Easter egg, a little bit of a hidden thing, and that is 
you've got regions of people that did not like each other. And that might not occur to you as you first read it. And so here's the thing, like Judea didn't really like Galilee and Galilee didn't really like Judea, but they both hated Samaria. Like these people did not like each other. And what you've got here is what? A radical shift. A radical shift because they've moved from being contentious toward one another to being so unified that the verse simply refers to all of these local cities and local bodies as what? The church. Like that's the healing power of the gospel. That's how powerful the gospel can bring people together. People who have hundreds of years of beef reconciled. And how are they reconciled? Well, Ephesians 2 answers this question, right? Ephesians 2.14. You might want to pay attention to this because if, if we ever happened to live in a country that was radically divided, it would be good to know about this. If that ever happened. How, how, how do you overcome deep, deep, deep acrimony? Well, I'll tell you how you don't do it. You, you will never succeed in bringing a people together if you try to reconcile them together. That's not how it works. The only way it works is if you reconcile them to something else together. That's, that's the only way it ever works. That's like 90% of my marriage counseling is, I am not here for you, husband. I'm not here for you, wife. I'm here for the Lord. Let's organize and rally around him. He has the stake in your marriage. So we don't find harmony by resolving our conflicts. We find harmony by resolving our conflict with God. We don't find peace on earth until we have peace with the creator of the earth. And so what's happened here is not some kind of tedious truth and reconciliation committee that Jesus sat down with the Galileans and the Judeans and the Samarians and said, let's talk about your historic inequities. No, he just made them all of Jesus. He made them at peace with him. He made them love something that, that, that was so powerful and central in their lives. And guess what? They all love that thing. And it's like, you want to you find like a way to like create like peace? Go to a football game where everybody's rooting for the same team. You know, there's this, there's this kind of functional idea of like what we need right now is just something that we all love. Something worthy of our love. And Jesus is worthy of our love. So his people, I can't promise how everything else is going to turn out, but as for him and his house, they will have fellowship. And this verse shows us that, and we, we know it to be true. Because... His enemies have become his friends. Old enemies can become new friends. And number three, his people will have freedom. Now, we started talking last week a little bit about this idea of the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I was trying to get across there. We talked about some, some interesting theological distinctions that have been made through the years. What we're trying to get across there is, is like the fear of the Lord is good. You want to fear the Lord. But you want the fear of the Lord to be enjoined with or informed by the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And so that this verse is one of the reasons why it's one of my favorite verses 
is I think this just describes the perfect Christian experience. I fear the Lord. I see God in his holiness. I see God in his truthfulness. I see God doesn't compromise and he's impartial and he judges each man according to his works. I see that and I'm like, mm, I'm scared. And then the comfort of the Holy Spirit comes in and says, yes, God is holy. He is true. He doesn't compromise. He is impartial. And he has sent his son as a sacrifice to atone for the sins which you yourself could never atone for. And so I don't, I don't, I don't make a way forward. I don't have some kind of right perspective on life or myself or the world or God if I abandon the fear of God. That's not the answer. The answer is, is that allow the fear of God to exist and joined with or connected to what the Holy Spirit says about Jesus. So I want the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And what happens then if I get these things is I'm free. I have a freedom that I would not have if I did not have both of these things together. And that freedom starts in what we refer to as conversion or salvation. And all, all we're talking about there is that there's a moment, like Christianity is, is obviously a choice. Christianity is obviously a a set of intellectual propositions, but it's but it but it's also a, a conversion experience. And like, well, what does it mean to? How does that work? How, how how would one become converted? It's like, well, let me describe how it looks. I, I kind of just did. There's a fear of the Lord piece to it, where somehow you realize, oh. God knows me. He's always known me. He knows my thoughts. He knows my dreams. He knows my attitudes. He knows my motivations. He knows everything I've ever thought, everything I've ever said. Okay. Also, he's perfectly holy and has absolute perfect standards for all things. Okay. Collar's starting to get a little tight. Starting to realize that there is a creator over all things, who has divine power over all things, who's orchestrating all things according to his will, and he's perfect. And that he is not so big or not so small as to be unable or unwilling to have a personal, individual view of you. And so God knows you, knows everybody, like you know the best person you know, but a lot more. And all of our life is just, whether we like it or not, headed down this termination point called death, when we will face this person who made us, who is perfect and who knows us completely. And that's just gonna happen. So that's a little concerning, especially if you're convinced he doesn't grade on a curve or that he's some kind of um, beta grandpa who's like, oh, it's okay. It's like any, 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 level of, uh, any level of concern that like, oh, this is an actual, like you, when you talk about God, you don't mean my grandpa with the Werther's originals and the cardigans. Like you mean like God, God. Yes, like the lightning bolt one. Yes, that's what I mean. You're going to meet him. And so that's the fear of the Lord comes in somewhere in there. And it's like, okay, 
That's an uncomfortable thought. I would like to pivot around that thought. I would like to get back into my silo, as we saw at the beginning. Can an algorithm change my, uh, my, my, my thing right now so that I can listen to what I want to hear instead of this? Well, how about you just listen to this? So, because so, uh, so, yeah, you're going to face this God, and, and that provokes what the Bible would refer to as the fear of the Lord. It's, it's like a healthy kind of reverence and like gulp, right? Early on when Peter meets Jesus, Jesus does a miracle in his midst, and Peter, <laughs> Peter says, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. There's the fear of the Lord. Like, I would rather not. I would rather not. Could we not do this? Well, that's great and everything. I think that's true. If you feel that, at least you're, at least you're alive. At least you have some capacity for processing information. Like, that's a good thing to feel. It's just not going to do anything for you. Um, it would sort of be like telling a blind man, hey, um, I don't know if you realize this, but for the last couple of days you've been on a hike. And it's like, yeah, I've been on a hike. It's like, um, you've, you've walked out, like you're calling him, you know, you can see through like a set of binoculars. You've walked out onto the most dangerous precipice. Uh, like you're, you're inches away from falling off of this cliff. Well, some blind men would be like, I don't even believe in heights. <laughs> so like I don't like I don't even have that concept. It's like forget you. I don't care. Hangs up the phone. Um, but other blind people are like, oh, well, yeah, that's great information. But what do you do with it? You know, like all all you do with it is be terrified. The fear of the Lord by itself is like, well, that's thank you for telling me that I'm spiraling towards eternity. Thank you. Thanks for the heads up. But our verse says that they walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So here's what happens. And this is why both are needed. You're like, okay, now I'm on a cliff and I can't see. And, I, and if I take one more step, I might die. I was having fun a second ago. Um, thank you for that. And then another part of the gospel message comes. And that is, oh, uh, God came to earth lived a perfectly righteous life, was morally perfect in every way, emotionally perfect in every way, never had a sinful thought, never had a sinful dream, motivation, and so forth. He loved everybody the right way. He loved what was good and hated what was evil. And he offered himself up as a spiritual scapegoat to pay for you to get new eyes and to get off the cliff. And that's the comfort of the Holy Spirit, right? The comfort of the Holy Spirit is there is a way. The way is named Jesus, and he will make it possible for you to not only like deal with this whole I'm facing God thing, but do as Hebrews says, draw near with confidence. Remember the gulp, the gulp, I don't, I'd rather not, I don't want to. Well, the, the pivot that that's comes through Jesus is so pronounced that later on in the Bible, the author of Hebrews will say, well, now, this moment of like standing before God, it's not something to fear anymore. And he says, you can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Right, so it's still a throne, it's still God, there's still reason to be in awe and reverence, but now I have the comfort of the Holy Spirit added to my fear of the Lord and I can draw near with confidence. So this is, this is true freedom. I don't think you can be free without the fear of the Lord because then you're just a fool and fools aren't free. But I don't think you can be free with free with only the fear of the Lord. 
Because you need some way forward. You've got to have a plan other than just being told you're doomed. And I'm, I'm very interested in that as it relates to the issue of conversion, of course. But I'm also very interested as it relates to just me. Um, someone who felt those things, had a change occur in my life, but I'm still not as free as I would like to be. And I want to conclude by just uh, listing one element of freedom that comes through this fear-comfort dynamic. And that is, what if I could fear God the right way so that he was my only fear? I was doing a study of Old Testament names for God, not the ones we all know, but like the ones that like are used once and maybe somebody, uh, you know, an old saint kind of invents it on the fly as they're experiencing God. But Hagar in Genesis says, you are the God who sees me. It's like a very personal, you are the God who sees me. And in Gideon always says, Gideon says, you are the God of my peace. You know, the one that really struck me was Jacob in a particular moment when he's pretty, pretty afraid, pretty scared. He's talking to Laban, and he says, um, he says, the God of Abraham the, is the fear of Isaac. He says, God, you basically he's saying, God, you are my fear. God, you are my fear. I want, I want you to try something with me, if you would. And it's okay if you don't believe this, because it's like literally just trying on a pair of shoes at this point. I just want you to see how it might feel. So, so, so say a few things in your head with me. Uh, just, just, just. I think it might be helpful to kind of play along. So, um, what if you said, you know, Oh God, you are my God. Say, oh God, you are my God. And then he said, Oh God, you are my only God. Oh God, you are my only. And then what if you said, oh God, you are my fear. You are my fear. And then what if you said, you are my only fear. So what kind of um, shift happens in my heart when I say, God, you are my God, and then I say, God, you are my only God? Like, there's a little bit thing going on there. I don't, I don't necessarily know how to describe it. But then what if you say, God, you are, you are my only fear. There's this, this beautiful moment in Exodus where they were told, you know, you shall have the Lord as your God and you shall have no other gods before him. But what if we could say, what if we could wake up tomorrow morning um, and wake up and say, I, I have no other fears other than God. God is my only fear. Can you imagine how free you would be if every other fear that you have right now, and I'm trusting you have many, can you imagine how free you would be if you were able to say, the only thing I fear is God, and I don't fear anything else? I think that's pretty revolutionary. I think that's pretty incredible. And I think that's what we're seeing after these battle-tested uh, long-suffering saints walk through the first nine chapters of Acts, and this summary statement is given. They walked in the fear of the Lord. What kind of fear of the Lord? Not the kind where you're paralyzed, but the fear of the Lord enjoined or connected or informed by the comfort of the Holy Spirit. 
they walked in that and they, the church was at peace and they multiplied and I really just uh, want to leave by saying, boy, I sure would like that. I, I sure would like for you to have that, and I would sure like that for, for me to have that. I, I sure would like for us to say, um, not in an arrogant way, not, not the kind of thing, you know, you, you, not, it's not a bumper sticker, but what if we really did say, the only thing I fear is God. I was reading through an eight-volume set of church history by the way, I was scanning, uh, not not reading, reading, and uh, uh, it, it's base. It's the classic of church history. It's an eight volume set. Philip Schaff was published like 1910 or something like that, and uh, I have it on my uh, digital. I have it digital, so I can scan particular phrases. So this guy's written eight volumes, and suddenly when he gets to the Reformation, he coins a phrase, uses it five times, and then never uses it again. And I want to read these to you as we're talking about this freedom that comes from only having the fear of God. He only uses this phrase, out of eight volumes of work, only uses this phrase when referring to the Reformation. So of Luther, for instance, he writes, there can be no doubt about this. Luther feared God and nothing else. He sought the glory of Christ and cared nothing for the riches and pleasures of this world. In another place, he writes, They were men of intense experience and conviction of their own sinfulness and of God's mercifulness. There's your uh, fear and comfort balance there. If they saw others perish in unbelief, it was not because they were worse, but because of the inscrutable will of God who gives to some and withholds from others the gift of saving faith. Those champions of freedom taught the slavery of the will in all things pertaining to spiritual righteousness. They drew their moral strength from grace alone. They feared God and nothing else. Their very fear of God made them fearless of men. He says in another place that the, the doctrines of grace breeds manly, independent, independent, and earnest characters who fear God and nothing else and favors political and religious freedom. A fourth time, Referring to Calvin, he says, Calvin sets the absolute sovereignty of God and the infallibility of the Bible over against the pretended sovereignty and infallibility of the Pope. Fearing God, he was a fearless, he was fearless of man. The sense of God's sovereignty fortified his followers against the tyranny of temporal sovereigns and made them champions and promoters of civil and political liberty. Fifth time. Calvinists fear God and nothing else. In their eyes, God alone is great. Man is but a shadow. The fear of God makes them fearless of earthly despots. It humbles man before God. It exalts him before his fellow man. The fear of God is the basis of moral self-government, and self-government is the basis of true freedom. This one chunk, this phrase, used to refer to one particular moment in history in which variations of the phrase, they feared God and nothing else, come to fruition. And you know the other word that kept popping up in those quotes? Freedom. Freedom. And not just internal freedom. Freedom, freedom. All the freedoms. I like them all. It's incredible to me that a man who wrote 
the whole history of the church has one phrase that he must use five times to describe one small period of history. And why is that? Why is the Reformation the place where he pulls that phrase out repeatedly? Because the Reformation was uniquely experiencing the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit in a set of doctrines called Reformation or Reformed Doctrines. That's what Reformed theology is. It's an incredibly high view of God's sovereignty, that he's like in charge of everything and Jesus is always winning, like that kind of stuff, always winning, never caught by surprise, always got it figured out, it's all working according to his plan. He's sovereign over everything right now. There's a, there's a straw wrapper that's blowing across I-35. It's doing that because God wants it to, like that level, okay? So, so you've got, the, the, the reason why this particular moment in history inspires this thing that I want for myself but I want for you is because there is this incredibly high view of God's sovereignty, i.e. the fear of the Lord, informed by this incredibly loving view of God. That while we were still enemies, he sent his son to die for us. That he, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we have, when we walk in, as these folks in Acts 9, 31 did, when we walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, we are unusually free. Because... We fear God and nothing else. 